Good evening, everyone. Welcome. And obviously, I have uh, Cameron Carpenter here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Please. So I looked at your website this morning. And it, unfortunately, the schedule only starts with today on the website, so which means you've got a webmaster that's taking care of business. But I've got um, this concert, and then on the 11th, I've got Naples, Florida, and then the 15th, I've got Moscow, and then the 17th, I've got St. Petersburg, and then the 25th to the 27th, I have Estonia, and then sometime in May, you're in Shanghai. My question for you is, when do you relax, and what, what, what do you do to relax? <laughs> um, well... You make the assumption that um, what I'm doing requires relaxation. <laughs> well, um, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I suppose when you sign on for life, you know, working as a competitive classical musician, well, actually, did you say competitive? Well, yes, competition oh, cool. is, a, is a major feature of the personality of, <laughs> of a classical musician. You have to, you have to really have a cutthroat attitude towards your fellow man <laughs> if you're going to get ahead in this world. Um, no, uh, but I mean, the, the assumption that because you're a musician, uh, life is, is going to be uh, burdensome and difficult and weird was one that I understood as a young person, and I'm not particularly given to relaxing. It's just hard to get me relaxed. I don't do well when I'm relaxed. I'm better if I'm, if I'm tense and actually somewhat angry. I play better. <laughs> it's a junky sort of energy, but it's, it's, it works. And... Um, I always like, I'd probably dwell on a little too much, but um, I always like to emphasize my adoration of the, not necessarily the provocatively unpleasant, but the, the, the other than, you know, road most traveled uh, aspects of music. Mm. You know, we all, I mean, I'm totally down with beauty and uh, harmony and cohesion and resolution, but I like a little violence and vulgarity along the way too. All right. So uh, anyway. Yeah. That's how, that's how it works vis-a-vis -vis relaxation. So then you really like airplanes, I guess. Do. I certainly do, yes. And I, don't, I wish I were able to fly one, and I sometimes think about learning, um, but, or trying to at least you know, take the steps um, in some ways, because uh, I've studied a lot of um, cockpit terminology and layout, and also the haptics of why certain controls are there, there turns out to be a publicly available study on the influence of typography on split-second de uh, decision-making, which was commissioned by the RAND Corporation for the design of jet fighter pilots, and I studied that very carefully, when, and I'm serious, in putting together the design of the console of my own organ, which departs to some degree from certain norms in the, the way things, things are done. And uh, so flying, of course, is a great um, a sort of... A touchstone for ideas of, uh, related to the organ because you're, compul you're, you're uh, carefully, just with almost, you know, without a lot, of, it's not weightlifting, you're just, you're touching it, but you're just sort of, you know, monitoring, guiding it along this vast machine mm -hmm. that's stretching out behind and in front of you. It's, uh, it requires a very little in input to change its direction and much like an aircraft into playing <laughs> as I'm reminding myself now of what I have to do shortly, um, in the playing of, for instance, Fugues by Bach, 
there does come a, a state, there can appear a, a state that's similar to the stall in an aircraft in which if certain things go wrong, you may lose it. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, you may yeah. not get it back. Yeah, so it's happened are, to me on more than one occasion. Yeah, well, you know, anybody who's played the organ and um, um, you can't, you know, there does come a point, a stall warning light should go on before the point is reached where you can no longer hide it from an intelligent <laughs> listener. So, uh, I believe me, I've been on both sides of that. Does that, does that, uh, no, seriously though, I mean, does that happen to you? Do you have... Oh, I've had dramatic failures in public, yeah. Well, it could happen tonight. Let's try not to avoid it, but if it does, we'll have talked about it and we can laugh about it afterwards, <laughs> perhaps. Well, you talk about the, the, um, the organ that you designed, and, and you know, when you were talking about the cockpit, it does, I mean, it does have this, any, any big organ like the Walt Disney Concert Hall has a certain, certain similarity in, in just the, the look of it to, a, to an airplane cockpit, but your, your touring organ in particular, if you look at it on his website, it does look quite space age, and I was saying to him, beforehand, and I think, that, I think this is the, my third opportunity to talk to you, we've never talked about his touring organ here, because when he comes to Walt Disney Concert Hall, he plays the Walt Disney Concert Hall organ, but it's a fascinating thing, and I would like for you to just tell us a little bit ab about that, when, why it came about, how it came about, and, and you know, all of these concerts that are coming up, some of, is it going to be featured in some of those, or is it going to be living where it ever lives? No, the, the absolute exception, um, to, and there's no judgment implied on this, in this, um, and I'll try to be as succinct and clear about this, these things as I can, but, because uh, I can get off to the weeds very easily, but um, the, the, it's a great, great honor to play the, the Walt Disney ha Concert Hall under any circumstances, regardless of the organ, which is also wonderful. The fact is, this place is a place that if you want to be a serious musician, you better, you better have some kind of, uh, you better be able to check into this hotel once in a while, and they're kind enough to have me. So that's, uh, that's a settled matter as far as I'm concerned, and I would be happy to play my touring organ here, but of course, pipe organs of all strains, and by and large, pipe organs which are generally of a much lesser artistic pedigree than this, and therefore usually more hyped, um, generally come with a sort of political inbuilt situation in which, because they're very expensive instruments, there's frequently a, a locally respected person who might have some reason to to not want to see a digital organ played in their hall. Actually, I understand that perfectly well. On the other hand, um, that concert in Moscow, which is my next concert on my organ, is, will be the 237th concert on my organ. Um, and 34% uh, of the total number of those concerts have taken places in buildings with organs, most of them very well-known organs. Mm. Um, so the, 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 the reason I cite those numbers is not to also point out that it must therefore have played 70% of them in places which otherwise would never have had any contact with an organ or organ music of any form by dint of not having an organ, but also to point out that the touring organ is not, and I never allow it to be understood as, and I won't have it spoken of as, a substitute right. for playing pipe organs. Right. In past times, and for the other organist who did something like this in the past, Virgil Fox, who had an electric there's a technological difference why we would call my organ digital and his electronic, which to an electronics or uh, to a digital computer history nerd, when you say something is electronic, you're actually slightly putting it down because it refers to analog rather than digital. I see the, a couple of you nodding, fellow nerds. Um, so the, the fact is it's only really ever been done once before and um, Virgil, whatever his strengths or weaknesses, unquestionably 
even though he did not have the technology available to him. In other words, in the most groundbreaking organ he ever had, which was just for a, sh a short window of months, really, at the end of his life, he had a five-manual experimental organ built by Rogers, which was identical to a similar organ, identical to an earlier system they put in Carnegie Hall in uh, 1974. Even that organ had uh, less uh, compute, computational capacity. It didn't have what you and I would think of as a central processing unit. It had less chutzpah than a, a big adding machine, basically, um, in a mathematical sense. And yet, he was able to use even such an instrument, and in fact, in much lesser earlier organs, as the proof of concept, which I'm now fulfilling on a, a somewhat more international but equally valid, uh, equally proving scale, which is that for a musician like an, who is an, also an organist, because of course one is, should you'd think you'd be a musician first, and then it would then the phylum and the genus and the species would sort of divide down into instruments. But organists, and I think of myself this way, must, I make the mistake too. Sometimes we're an organist first, and then everything else sort of after. But if you're really a musician, then it's already a given that regardless of whatever instrument you play, you serve music before your instrument, don't you? Well, if you do, then wouldn't it also be true that you, that it's an, already an, a self-understood thing that you would want to play, you'd need to be expect and you hope to play and work for years to play and pay to ex go to expensive conservatories to play in as many venues as possible, right? right? And so the idea that somehow then you're you're disrespecting the grand tradition of, of these organ builders and masters and composers and players by um, actually employing the latest available technology is absolute hogwash, of course, and demonstrably false. So I view, uh, I view that as in several ways. I, I view it as a mandate as a, as a performer, um, particularly one who is, um, shall we say, not of the church, that if I, am, that if I do love the organ, and I do, uh, and I love it enough to try to give it a way to exist other than the existing status quo, and there doesn't have to be a judgment made about the status quo for that to be needed. It's seen to be needed. If there are concert halls that have active, important identities in the world in which organists can't play, obviously that's not good for organists. I think it's incumbent upon someone like me who comes at the time at which I come to try to do what I can. Now, there are other, uh, there are other things that make me a sort of an oddball in this mess, because I do come at a, I was born in 1981. Um, I started Juilliard um, one year before 9-11 occurred, which coincided with the beginning of my career as a performer where I had started my own management company in New York to sell, if you can believe it, solo pipe organ recitals around the place, which I did and, had, and was doing, and so my ambition was already in place. And, um, on September 11, 2001, I happened to be flying back from a recital in Columbus, Ohio, and minutes before the fateful day began, I actually, my plane glided past the World Trade Center, and it was one of the most gloriously beautiful things I ever saw. And later that day, in the attack, when Trinity Church Wall Street, which as most of you know is at that, was very close to the former Trade Center, um, was evacuated. It was evacuated during a service during which the pipe organ was being played, and consequently the pipe organ was left on and vacuumed up the dust cloud. And powdered concrete is not only highly corrosive, especially to pipe organs, which weren't in that good of shape at the time anyways, but also uh, it meant that the entire place was also a crime scene. So that organ was effectively 
ceased its existence at that point. And the instrument that was built to replace it, or I should say the organ that was built to replace it, was the first organ in the technology which built the platform that later allowed us to build my organ. And it was built by a company called Marshall and, Ogletree, Marshall and Ogletree LLC, which is to this day in Needham, Massachusetts, and is a, a strange little shop and operates as, as is often seen, although usually in Silicon Valley, if you think of the early history of Fairchild Semiconductor, it was sort of you know, the two guys in a garage type deal. Um, and Marshall and Ogletree had that kind of start and is now since, since built a sort of a handful of organs, all of which are important. And the first was their major debut organ was at Trinity Church Wall Street in New York City. And I think that's important because there are a lot of stories in the history of the organ where you get these dramatic public moments. Um, in the, someone will correct me, but I believe it was in the late 17th century that there was an organ building competition at St. Paul's in London between Father Smith and somebody else and they both built these monumental organs. Or you can think of the big technological exhibitions by Edison and Tesla and the guys like that. Um, that's uh, a, something that I see that installation of that organ at Trinity as a moment because it also coincided with a lot of webcasting and, and it, sort of the rise of YouTube. That organ was seen by millions and millions of people and it was in a, in a, a tourist location, a central, a hugely important organ in New York City. It was wildly controversial that it was installed because it wasn't a pipe organ and all of this. And on, in November of 2004, I was working as a bike messenger um, while I was a student at Juilliard, practicing on a broken down Allen organ I bought uh, for $500 on eBay. And um, uh, it's not meant as a sob story, but it's, it's, it is kind of sob worthy now that I listen to it. Um, <laughs> And I'd heard about this from a buddy of mine, this incredible organ that was installed, and I, went, I managed to weasel my way in to get and play it, and within 15 seconds I knew that this was it. This was, I was absolutely, this is the organ I had dreamt about, not literally this organ, but this system. This, would, this was a thing, I could feel it in the same way that a, a, a person who'd spent their life with a keyboard could feel the moment that they played a, a great, great mm -hmm. piano or something, yeah. and had been practicing on an upright because you could instantly tell that the calibration between you know, the mind and the finger and the instrument and the event, because there's so many moving parts, especially in an organ and especially in an electric action organ, all the mechanical actions have their own, uh, their own bugaboos. You know, there can be 11 or 12 things that have to happen before you get a note and then you have to hear the note. And sound travels rather slowly as it turns out and organs tend to be in big spaces. And so there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of what we'd call lost motion. It's like when you go to the gym and the machines work, you know, are, are worn out. So before you can get any load, you have to push through all this mess. It's a bit like that. And that mess that you push on the shoulder machine or whatever, that is what is completely uh, eradicated by this system because there are no moving parts. All of that is the, all of that is the sort of aging of mechanisms that are, are played upon by momentum and inertia and stiction and hysteresis and all these, and friction, of course, and they're like everything else breaking down physically. And if you can make them operate in a world where there is no physical matter, then you're actually fulfilling the vision of the great organ builders of old, from Arp Schnitger to Dom Bedos to Aristide Kavaikol to Robert Hope Jones to Ian Skinner, the Austin brothers, and everybody else who ever was up late nights trying to make a better electro-pneumatic action right. or a better Barker lever or a new sound. And those guys who were the great inventors 
although some of them would have thought the technology blasphemous, if they could understand what it is, and some of them couldn't. I mean, if you showed J.S. Bach a cell phone, he would consider it witchcraft. Um, I think we can deduce this from his own words, what few of them there are. But if they were able to understand how it actually worked, they would understand that it was, it was a potential extension of their own craft. So that, for that and many other reasons, I see, uh, I see this particular line of digital organs as hugely important in the history of the organ. I see it as a potentially revolutionary force for ownership of organs, which to this day is still a sort of haphazard matter of, of, of uh, budget, of usually used instruments, and usually really cheaply built instruments. Because if there's one thing, one right, I feel I have earned and my advocacy of the digital organ, it is that to criticize the great majority of laughable digital and electronic organs which have given the instrument as a whole its richly deserved rotten reputation. <laughs> People well, think that I am out to criticize pipe organs and I do because I love the organ and one, if the king is really to be understood as the king, well, he can bear a little criticism. Kings around the world and, 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 and inbuilt despots are finally seem to be in this world of ours coming to grips with some uh, bit of judgment. And I think it's time that the King of Instruments did the same. And I think that it might be approached uh, by the subject of the relationship between the artist to his instrument. And there will never be, nor should there be a world, I was discussing this with an organist the other day, in which, for instance, all organs are the same. Uh, the world will, until the apocalypse, um, will be richly blooming with pipe organs of every stripe, and it should be, and we should be so glad. And probably per capita, we have the greatest number of them in this country. Americans tend to think of, of Europe as the land of organs. Ha! Yes, they have some wonderful 18th and 17th and 19th century things, but if you want to talk about modern organs, I mean, this is the, the European organ uh, of today is a shrill caricature of the Baroque organ, an, an anti-ergonomic, I mean, I could go on. The, 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 this, is, this, this fits into one of the reasons that the Turing organ exists. So if you understand my conviction about these things, then you understand that for me as an organist, I have no inhibitions at all about professing the love for not only a digital organ, but also the, the somewhat, to this day, still slightly risable idea that a digital organ could one day be a great organ. It's a perfectly foregone conclusion. It had better be, otherwise what are we doing? And after all, it, is not, uh, it, it does not spell the death of the organ, of the pipe organ, that the digital organ could have a great new ascendancy. We should all very much hope that it does, because the pipe organ is the family from which the digital organ descends. The pipe organ foretells the digital organ, and I don't just mean artistically, in ter informational terms. Uh, when, the hi when the history of the computers, and in fact of artificial intelligence is finally written, which it won't be by a human, <laughs> it will of course include lengthy chapters about the organ, which will have played a great role in the rise of such a machine. Um, the organ is, uh, was until the uh, invention of the telephone exchange um, the most sophisticated machine built by man, not only the most sophisticated musical instrument, but device. In early electro-pneumatic organs, um, at the very beginning of the introduction of electricity into organ building, which began in earnest in 1899, early organs which, had, which were built by George S. Hutchings under the command of Ernest M. Skinner, the early organs which contained a mechanism, 
primitive as it was, to retain the stop combination settings decided by an organist. This was revolutionary in itself because such a system had never existed before. This, I believe it can be shown, was the first industrial application in human history of memory capture in any mechanism. In other words, it preceded the, uh, it preceded the, uh, the, similar, the later developments in adding machines which could recall uh, numbers and, and trigonometric functions and things like that. This occurred in 1906, so it would have had to, to precede um, later developments by the Burroughs Company. I've looked into it a little bit. And, oh, by the way, I'm happy to be challenged by any other nerds. I'm, I'm looking for information on this, but I'm just... Save your questions. I'm just trying to point out that the organ plays a huge role in, in, and has deep links to industry and engineering. Consider the fact that when you, when you uh, play a pipe organ, and it's, it's true for a, an organ with a, with a blower, as this instrument has, but it, the example actually also holds for an, or an ancient organ which is pumped by hand. When a person is pumping, um, that, or, that air is not going directly to the pipes. It first goes to a sort of small room, which is a, a, a called a regulator, which keeps the pressure constant so that it makes musical sense, more or less. Well, that, of course, is the birth of the battery. That's a system for storing energy for later consumption. Um, I have a, a little hunch that the cymbal stern, which is an automatic wind-driven device, which dates, we think, to the late 14th century, in at least one example, um, is uh, the first application of a motor, of course. Bells that... Uh... The, the me mechanical bells uh, that, you can, that you can activate are a very, very old thing that comes on, on, on sort of organs from early organ building, and that's a system that's air-powered. Well, that means that it's a pneumatic motor. So if you have a motor in the late 15th century, you actually have the most advanced technology in human hands. These things are moments that are integral to an understanding of why the digital organ is not only inevitable and required, but is needed. Because it is, it is an inevitable outgrowth of a system which has deep links to uh, basically all of the organization of the systems that we take for granted, which for those of us who are music lovers, it should be noted, the fundamental one, of course, is the harmonic series itself. When you look at the way that har the harmonic series is structured, you are looking at a sort of stop list, as you can see. Just as when you look at the stops of the Walt Disney Concert Hall organ, you can, without knowing anything about, about the organ or even music, you can quickly see that the, the lengths that are indicated for the feet, the column feet of the longest pipe in each set, are mathematically interrelated by a power of two. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic miracle, and it exists in our very selves. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that kind of thing um, is one of the reasons, I guess, I take it very personally, that's, that people sometimes, oh, the digital organ, you know. Look, the fact is, someone at some point, and I realize it's, it's a bit like public broadcasting, someone has to do it. Um, and maybe it's just my department, but I think it's very important that the digital organ be taken totally seriously, 100% seriously, and defended by, and had their artistic life devoted to by at least one serious organist. Now, if you can consider me a serious organist, it's a different matter. But at this point, that is my, that is my calling. I hate the word, but I suppose that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. Big nutshell. 
So if you're interested in this, big, big, big nutshell. If, if, if you're interested, he didn't ask me to do this, but he has a new CD out, a new recording out. So I, I, again, I'm an anachronism. I really, can you imagine it's releasing CD, a CD? Actually, I was, do I was listening to it being streamed this afternoon. I don't have a machine to play this ancient spinning disc. Yeah. I laugh most at the record do. label. Anyway, and he has a new recording out um, in which he plays the Poulon Concerto and also, m more interestingly in some ways, the Rachmaninoff variations on the theme of Paganini, which of course you know is like the fifth con concerto that Rachmaninoff wrote in a way. And I will admit being a little predisposed to not like this, but I listened to it a couple of times, and then I heard it when maybe some of you heard him on Jim Schweda on Friday night, heard it again, and it is fabulous. And it, it, I think if, if, if nothing else, it, it says just the, the incredible validity of that instrument. And be, because it, it, it doesn't just... It's not just the, the Paganini uh, variations again. It's a whole new piece in a way. Well, th thank you. And I'm, very I'm being much very sincere because it's it's so interesting the way that that instrument interacts with the orchestra in ways that the piano never could because the piano is the piano is the piano. This is like a chameleon, and it comes in and out of the textures, and you have to really listen sometimes. Whoever mixed this thing, probably you and somebody else, did a masterful job because you have to listen really hard to know what's the orchestra and what's him. Well, it's, thank it's you. Really you know, the funny something. thing is that recording is pretty much as is because it's in Concert House Berlin, so it's a great acoustic, and it's a fabulous orchestra. And, uh, of course, my organ has a, like a 200% greater dynamic range in both directions than any pipe organ. And uh, so there are things I can do with it that are, that are absolutely hair-raising just from an operations standpoint. But, um, and you hear the piano part in places that you never hear the piano part. Well, that's true, but you know, you gotta remember that this is, that you, I'm, look at the material I'm working with. Yeah, I mean, it's so fantastic, beautiful. and it's, and people don't realize maybe how contrapuntal Rachmaninoff is sometimes. Now that piece is also, I mean, I'm playing the Goldberg variations I was working on at the same time. I do well with miniatures. I can play these works that are long, long, but I don't have the attention span for it. I do, I mean, I've played those things, and in the organ music, there's lots of long music, but I mean, I, let's be honest, I know where my strengths are. It's not always in the long, long line. Of course, as I get older, maybe that changes a little bit, but, um, but with the Rachmaninoff, you got these quick, you know, these vast, these quick character studies, one after another. Now, they do all link together in some ways, as do the Goldberg variations, but there again, it's interesting with the organ because you can create allusions to things that, allusions to things that you did before, which Bach does anyway in the variation. So you can reference that, you know. You can illustrate when something turns upside down. And, you know, I'm like you, and I, I caught myself doing it on Jim's show, of all places, to do it as you're sitting talking to maybe the most musically educated American, he, I guess. Um, I mean, I'd certainly nominate him for We were talking about the, the, this, the piano versus the organ and so on. Well, of course, a piano is a piano, a piano, but just a minute. Gilles, Granger, Horowitz, Landowska, well, that was pretty much a piano. Um, all these incredible artists, I mean, I never, and you should hear me play my one-sided piano playing, 
my piano playing is so one-dimensional. I don't want to seem like I'm criticizing any pianists. And I listen to Daniil Trifonov's recording quite a bit and Stephen Huff's recording too. They're both friends. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in awe of the great pianists and I'll never be an artist like that and it's a different world anyways. But, um, but mechanically, you know, a piano kind of is a piano, is a piano. And the thing is, uh, that's not just, I mean, when I play a piano, you can believe it's a piano, is a piano, is a piano. It sounds like a piano, an upright piano, a slightly out of, out of calibration player piano, basically. <laughs> that's how I do it. Um, but pianos themselves, of course, even a great piano played by a great pianist listened to by connoisseurs who listen to the height of the art will never, there's, it's not character, it's not a lack, it's not something that's lacking, there's no but in the, in the description, but it, it will never be a characteristic of that, that there is extreme contrasts of timbre. Now there are things we could do and it doesn't require any musical context to set it up. You can literally just walk in and you could do it. It's not, it's not something about me, it's the character of the instrument. You, any one of us could walk into Disney Hall right now and if I told you which thing to pull out and which key to press and then what to do again, you'd be able to hear yourself that these are simply musical sound producing entities that have almost nothing in common in a way and no one would ever be able to, con no one who, who could hear them child uh, or, or a musical professional, nobody would ever confuse one for the other. Yeah. And that means that when you juxtapose them and when you have an organ with enough non-musical supporting controls, usually known as couplers and other things which don't themselves make sound but which allow us to control the whole damn thing. If you have enough of that stuff that you can manipulate these sounds and get them to where you want them geographically because everything is still determined by the hand, then you can play these identities against each other like mad and, and completely elucidate whole lines of counterpoint that even those of us who spent years playing the piece maybe even never even thought of and heard. And paradoxically, while that's particularly interesting to a nerd like yours truly who is super steeped in the music and plays it for hours, it's even better for somebody who's never heard the piece yeah. because now they're able to sort of go by tone color. Perhaps it doesn't seem very sophisticated, but for the, for, the, for the average listener, the organ is really actually a very practical instrument. It's just that it's seldom played with the panache and the abandon that the, mech, that the fortress of the mechanism requires. Because that's the, that's, the, that's the terrible thing about the organ, is not only its immobility, it's just, it's just this basically an, a calculating machine of sorts. And in order to get some sense of drama and sweep into it, you have to be able to be intimate enough with your own mechanism and kind of non-caring enough about the problems in the mechanism you're encountering to just brush through it. Mm -hmm. And it can't seem as though it's difficult. And that's very hard to do. Yeah, and I think that what you're saying, too, about, about the colors and bringing the, light, the, the voices and all that to life, I think that that says something about your registration the way that you register Bach, for example. I mean, it's, 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 in many ways, it's all about, it's at least as much about color and the, the musical line as it is about Bach's intricate true. counterpoint. I, I tell my students never to, never to um, really believe necessarily anything they read on Wikipedia, but Wikipedia said, Carpenter has been both criticized by some and praised by others for his unorthodox interpretations of the standard organ repertoire. You like that? I wrote I that. I like, oh, did you? I like it. Did that's, you? That's, yeah. That's good. It's, it's good, and it's true 
and I think some of it has to do with your approach to registration. I didn't which write it, but I could have. Unorthodox. Well, thank you. Well, it's uh, thank you for asking about that, uh, or for, for mentioning that. You know, uh, I was I've been thinking about this because I'm now I'm turning 38 in 10 days, and. Um, so uh, at my birthday party, we put up a nice picture, uh, you know, of, of, of somewhere death on his abacus takes one little circle and moves it onto the other side. <laughs> um, that's my view of birthdays. The, but as that is, as I'm getting more, uh, presumably, cylinders on the other side of death's abacus, I find myself looking back now on when I was a young organist, because now I'm working with some young organists, one of whom you're going to hear tonight. Um, and these, because uh, I, I started very young, and I was extremely, if you can believe it, very arrogant, and very, <laughs> very brash. And you know, some people know this because man, talk to Manuel Rosales. If you, if you want somebody who knows a, the truth, talk to Manuel, who knew me when I was in high school. And so there's a, there's so many cliches of a young organist, um, which I certainly fulfilled. You know, plays. Some of you will know them. Um, plays too fast, plays too loud, only plays too loud, and plays much too loud. And um, all of those things. And, you know, these, these, there's nothing quite like a young, particularly, you know, high school, early high school organist. I mean, I just remember burning with a fee. I used to get up at 5 a.m. so that I could get Crawford Hall at the North Carolina School of the Arts starting at 6 to get that. But that's, it takes that kind of... That's why I laugh at the idea of, you know, to a certain degree, uh, trying to hustle up young organists for the future of the instrument. That's not really how it works. It, anybody who's going to be an organist in the future will have fought for the right to join that army themselves. You know, they won't be able to be kept out. Um, but you go through a change and you go through stages. So I, I, was, I was like that, you know, I was, it was, I used, and I used to generate these huge transcriptions that were all over the top. I would transcribe everything. I wanted to have hundreds of registration changes in Franck's chorale preludes, which are, you know, bad enough as they are, um, and all of that. And then my career kind of started, and then I, I got to see the true harsh light of conservatism and how uh, ugly it can be and how close-minded people can be, and so I responded even more, and that's when we got really big hair and all of that. <laughs> but now I'm kind of getting older, and I'm coming through that again. And what's happening is that I no longer feel, uh, I don't care so much what people think. Good, good. And, and this is great artistically because now I'm kind of going back to the earlier days, but my technique is a little better and I have slightly more experience. So now I can just play the way I want to play and I'm actually uninhibited enough to do it. And of course the touring organ eggs me on like crazy because it gives me everything that I want and lots of it. And so, as I've, but as I've learned to live with that organ, as I continue to change it, and I change it to the way I want to play. So there are, you know, there, the reason that organ can play the Rachmaninoff the way it has is be, for one thing, it has a 42-note pedal board instead of a 30 or a 32-note pedal board, because when I designed the organ, I knew I wanted to transcribe that piece, amongst many others, including Howard Hansen's Second Symphony, which uses all 42 notes, and which is also probably going to be on my next recording and is now in heavy circulation. You can see it on the, on, online at uh, the Paris Philharmonie. Really proud of that performance. You can see things on that organ which are not possible on any other organ in the world. So now I've painted myself into the corner where I began. Because I started out with organs for with which I was very frustrated because they could, you know, they, they didn't have what I wanted. So then I built this amazing organ. And now it's the only one 
that can do things that I want. So if I don't remain, and there's there, one copy, and there's one of it. So it's this it never before existed in music history in a way, this kind of incredibly precarious situation, which is really important to no one except me, but terribly important to me, uh, be, that if this single organ, for instance, as it probably inevitably must through fire or flood, let's be honest, at some point the thing is going to get, is just going to cease to exist probably on some transit from Salina, Kansas to some other concert in Arkansas. And that will be an incredible artistic crisis that moment, you know. Yeah. So, th so as you can see, building another one. I have. Well, I I am in a way because I ha that's that's where we go back to the future of why is it not about more than just me and my stupid organ that I keep in a dirty warehouse in Germany? This is just the beginning, you see. Because if my organ is capable of doing the things that it is, and it is then it would, theoretically, it's just a matter of money to just build 10 of them at a time. And they're all linked, of course. And then you ship those, those 10 go out to the most important schools and, and so on, and the places that don't have organs and need them, or do have them and have a Heinbaud organization owned, run by dictators. And then you see any one person who played one recital on one of those organs would be instantly prepared to play it on all of them. So if you had a bunch of those organs around the world, you would instantly have a Steinway D-esque infrastructure for future organists. And by that point, of course, you would also have an economic but artistically built, foundation-owned and supported, sponsorship-given, uh, committee-designed international practice organ, probably a small three-manual with a representative decent sound system. And these would be given away by the hundreds to the astoundingly, t I mean, if you want to talk about changing the future of the organ, get serious, mm. because it requires an embrace of technology, a technology which will, which will produce better, more experienced, more exciting, and more technically flexible individual artists who will be better equipped to deal with the great pipe organs of the world in the future. That's how you do that in my world. Now, I don't want to change the subject, but just speaking of exciting new individual artists. You want to say a word about tonight because we're about to run out of time and maybe... Thanks. I, I, and, that's, and thank you for reminding me to share the soapbox. Um, the, um, well, uh, one of the experiences that one has as a young organist, and I, I think it's fairly commonplace even today, is the astonishing lack of opportunities. Um, one of which is helped but not solved by the, the installation of pipe organs in concert halls because there are only so many of them and it's hard to get access to them. But I, better than most people, should know what it's like to feel that you have a particularly strong personal voice and want to express it and also simultaneously see the frustrations that can be wrought upon a young artist by the condition of the status quo of the organ. Um, and so when I meet such an individual, I think it's, I, I try to give them, uh, to share some spotlight. And you have here in, in LA, um, one of the world's most talented young organists and composers, who's a student at USC, and is a student of Cherry Rhodes and Lad Thomas, who are also great local family, uh, and great lights in the organ in their own right, and both to their great good credit are here. Thank you, Cherry, and thank you, Lad. But their student, Thomas Millen, will be my honored guest tonight and will be playing his own work, Ballad of the Impossible. So please, Thomas, let's have you stand up and be acknowledged if you don't mind. I really uh, hope to be doing more. I, I'd like to be doing this in every concert if possible. There are so many young organists that I want 
to introduce to my audiences. And Thomas is going to be, uh, in short order, the first artist besides me to play a public debut on my organ. Um, and that's, I hope, to be the first of many young organists that will be doing that. So please stay tuned for that. I'm sure it will be very interesting. And I also ought to mention, um, in the same passing, that I'm not going to play my piece tonight, Serenade and Fugue on Bach. Um, it isn't ready, and in addition to it not being ready, I, did, I can't escape the fact that not only is Bach's own trio sonata in D minor a far better piece than I could ever hope to write, uh, you will be hearing better music, I can promise you that. Thomas is playing and his piece is so spectacular that the idea of having to listen to my somewhat threadbare late 1930s recycled Korngold slash Henry Mancini nostalgic musings is probably not the best value for money here at Music Center. So I'm going to see this, the new music uh, portion of the evening. But aren't we going to get that when you improvise? Oh, you'd have to remind me. <laughs> you never really know what you're going to get, but at least it's mercifully short, and when it's over, you never have to hear it again. I think with that, we ought to let, it, let you get, get on to it. Let's do. Thank you. You've been so patient. Thank you so much. Thank you.